This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And uh, today I'm here with, uh, as always, uh, Maxwell Bogue. Hey, everyone. How are you doing, Max? I'm all right. How are you doing, Joris? Yeah, good, good, good. Uh, yeah, really enjoying uh, kind of some summer and uh, some uh, semblance of normalcy. <laughs> the, the the veneer of normalcy. Yeah, okay, okay. yeah, probably probably more 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 uh, accurate there. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> so today, Max and I are joined by uh, Tuan Tronpon, who is a long, long, long time uh, industry veteran in 3D printing. Tuan has done sales roles really uh, in a lot of companies, starting at Z Corp, uh, going to 3D Systems, and Object, then, then Stratasys, then Arcam, which is now GE, Desktop Metal, and now he's with Arriva. So he's a, a real uh, consummate sales professional, and uh, he knows a lot of people in the industry. And if you heard of him, you probably know about his LinkedIn graphics he does, trying to like uh, keep us all abreast of the industry and things like that, and trying to keep everybody up to date with what the, the startups are and things like that. So it's great to, to talk to you today, Tuan, uh, again. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Anytime. I, th- I think we should start with the fact that, that, that how you got involved with 3D printing, because you're actually, you're, you're originally Vietnamese, then yep. you immigrated to Denmark, yep. and then you ended up uh, working in 3D printing from, from around there. Tell us a little bit about that story. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I call it by uh, my accidental passion because uh, I started business engineering in Denmark and we didn't, it's like more for business uh, technical sales, but we didn't even have a 3D printer back in, in 93 to 97. And so I was actually in semiconductor for four years. I worked for a Danish company called Giga. I got acquired in 2000 at the peak for 1.25 billion, one of the largest acquisitions back then in Danish history. Um, so uh, that enabled me to relocate uh, to the U.S. and it's always because of a girl. So <laughs> I ended up in Boston because she started at BU. Uh, my dream was to go to Silicon Valley. Uh, that was my dream. My dream was to have a convertible, small beach house and, uh, and see palm trees. That was my dream, uh, my American dream. Uh, I'm yeah. still in Boston for the last 18 years. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, because of this girl. She, Do you have the convertible, though? <laughs> no. No, you don't I want don't. a convertible in Boston, man. That's <laughs> no, like... I I, you, you need an SUV for, because of all the snow. This is exactly. in England, okay? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so because of this girl, who's now my wife, Tao, uh, I joined her for a reunion party 10-year or 20-year, I can't remember, back in 2003. And her friend's friend at this party happened to be the financial controller at Z-Corp doing glue and powder 3D printing. This is, this is the early days when uh, if you look, it was a much smaller space. Any 3D printer industrial below 100,000, there was only dimension in Z-Corp. It was a much simpler world. <laughs> and so if it wasn't for her, I would have never been introduced to 3D printing. And I'm an engineer. I'm like, what is a 3D printer? And, and then I, I visited them and had lunch with them and he showed me the glue and powder Z-Corp machine and, and they did a ball bearing and I was excavating it out of the powder like Indiana Jones and then came out the ball bearing and that blew my mind. I said, 
this is going to be the future. Uh, in five years, everybody will have a 3D printer at their workplace. It took a little bit longer than that. Yeah. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> yeah. Z-Corp was like a powder based technology. They used, what was it, potato starch initially and inkjet to make, especially like kind of fragile parts, uh, it, it, but very nice, colorful parts for, for display and, and prototypes and stuff, right? Yeah, it started as starch, but then it was a, a stronger polymer, but it was never as strong as plastic, but it had full color, 24-bit, and the color is useful. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then you ended up like doing sales there, right? So ever since then, you've kind of been very much in, in involved in sales, right? I've always, yes, I've always been in a sales role, even with the Intel, uh, always in the, in the sales and marketing on the business side. So uh, at Zcorp, I was running, building up Asia Pacific. So while I moved to the U.S. Eight, the last 18 years, I did spend two years in Hong Kong uh, building up the Asia Pacific business for Zcorp. So I was there for six and a half years. And we'll get back to that about recession because we went through that in 2008 and what happened in the following years. This is when I jumped ship to work for RV at 3D Systems in 2010. And then, and do you have any kind of tips? Because we don't really discuss sales here. Much. Do, you have a lot, do you have a lot of tips for, for people who want to get started in sales? I mean, what do you need to be or what do you need to do if you're a salesperson? The, the truth is there are a lot of salespeople, right? There are a lot of uh, different kind of salespeople, but I think the best one in the industry of those who are passionate, who are believers, who, are, who want to do good by the industry, who I love this industry mostly because of the people besides the cool technologies, but the people are really nice. There is this, let's change the world together. Let's show them different kinds of technologies. So, you need to be passionate and you need to have dedication and commitment. And a lot of my frenemies today, I use the word frenemies because you might be my competitor today, but tomorrow you might be my colleague and you never know, right? Because the industry was... So that's a very big chance there. So I have to be nice to people and people should be nice to each other because you yeah. never know, you might need a job from them someday. So it's a yeah. very small world and I, I, I feel blessed to be in this industry. Did you ever have like a favorite line or a, a hook to try and sell a printer? My opening line is always, are you 3D printing yet? And if you're not, uh, let me tell you why you should. If you're not, then you're going to be out of business. It's really about a tool, right? It's kind of like thinking about like the internet or the computer. or If you don't uh, research for a new disruptive new way of like, like the internet and, and Amazon and Prime Online, well, 10 years ago, we were still talking about whether it was safe to buy things online. This mm -hmm. is the new normal, right? Mm -hmm. So being in a, a little, I think in a, a little bit of being an evangelist without being religious, you've got to have to believe and drink the Kool-Aid to tell the story and educate and inspire the rest of the world. And I, I think that is the, you, you, you need to be able to enjoy that. If you don't enjoy that, it's really difficult to do 3D printing sales because we're not just selling cutting edge technology, it's bleeding edge, it's not perfect. Yeah. And it's growing and it's improving, it's better than what it was a year ago, two years ago, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. So believing and trusting that we will get there and uh, enjoy the journey and take people with you, that takes some kind of convincing and confidence, right? That this is gonna be the right way. And then and you've worked for different companies in different stages of the industry. We really said, because I've noticed that we've, we've seen the level of interest. It used to be just a department in the company that would do prototypes. Then all of a sudden it was strategic. 
now all of a sudden people are actually using it. I mean, have you noticed the industry change uh, as well? Absolutely. A few years ago, I start to see the, the, the shift. So pro uh, plastic polymer non-metal has been great for prototyping, done some tooling. You saw composites with, with Mark Forge doing jigs and fixtures, trying to do more than prototyping. But it wasn't until the last four or five years that it's gotten moving faster to really moving into production. Uh, really putting it in uh, rapid manufacturing. Because in the past, it was only uh, 10 years ago doing manufacturing, it has to be strong enough. And so we talk about metal, but EOS and other systems in laser powder bed were extremely expensive. Uh, a, a printer was about 600,000. Um, today, those are can uh, like a Zach metal or one click metal from Germany, you can get a smaller laser powder bed for as little as 100,000. So I would say, there we are in the migration or expansion that we're putting is moving into uh, manufacturing production uh, because it's a different ball game, right? You're not doing one, two, five of a thousand different parts for prototyping or in a service field. You're doing thousands of one, two, five parts. And for that, it's a different ball game because it's not when a part is just good enough. No. It has to be identical. If you're printing a, a hundred or a thousand, they need to be identical. So the machine has to be much more reliable. You need to be able to repeat it. You need to be able to predict the quality. You need to have quality assurance. Uh, and quality cannot be compromised. It cannot be good enough. If it, because planes can go down and implants can destroy human life. So uh, the, the bar is much higher. And that's what we are seeing today moving uh, into manufacturing, but now you're also seeing that for non-metal like HP multi-jet fusion or carbon, uh, enabling much stronger material properties and machine reliability and predictability in, in terms of productivity that now even non-metal can move into uh, manufacturing and you see also Nexa 3D trying to get into that space. So that's a, that's a healthy trend for the industry that we are growing up, you can say, uh, into manufacturing in much higher volume as well, besides metals. And and does that does that change? I think the way we have to sell ourselves, or we have the way we have to sell machines. You know, because we're much more solution. You have to integrate with ERP. You have to integrate with safety stuff. Is is it really changed a lot of uh, things from the sales perspective? Absolutely. So it was the shift has, was already slowly happening, uh, but with COVID, it's, it, it was uh, pulling even earlier. So right. what I what I mean is that. Why people buy something, I learned in the six years I was uh, in metals with Arkham and as a metal is for a metal part. People really didn't care how you're making that metal part. They have a, a, a problem and they're making metal traditionally. They don't really care how you're doing it. Electron beam, laser beam, binogeny, they really don't care. But what they do care about is your quality has to be the same or superior. It has to be. Uh, uh, it has to be. Uh, it has to be able to simplify the supply chain. It has to be able to merge the components. But more importantly, the biggest component is that it has to make financial. It, it, it needs to have a business case, financial justification. Why should I switch to your part? But if you can do this part additively, I don't care how. But the, the same or better quality. But you can do it instead of dollars in cost per cubic inch, but down to cents, that's compelling. 
And so people were looking for a solution. They didn't really care which technology, let alone which, which machine, right? And then came COVID. COVID said, okay, in the past, the manufacturer of any 3D printer had the luxury of saying, okay, you can have this solution, but you need to buy a printer. You need to, uh, uh, we will help you to get an operator. You need facility, site preparation. It was not, it was not easy to bring that in-house uh, to do it so. So with COVID, people saying, CAVEX, budgets are being cut, they're being reduced. They really still need a solution. They still need to be competitive. They still want to bring supply chain uh, closer to the Western Hemisphere, um, uh, to, to Europe or to US, away from Asia in case a future pandemic will happen. So they want to have supply chain optimization. Um, but what happens now is I think uh, uh, carbon was ahead of their time and, and really uh, in a good way leading subscription. Uh, I'm a big fan of subscription. You saw SM Metal also moving into subscription for uh, DM Fiber machine, but also HP last year announced they will also offer subscription for their machine. And it kind of makes sense, right? That people want a solution, they do not necessarily need to own it. Because what happens in recent years is there, there are so many startups, there are so many technologies, so many uh, innovations that in a few years, whatever I buy, whatever material, that it might be uh, obsolete or, or, or like an old piece of furniture. So moving to subscription, never owning it, but it will always be upgraded and having updates and upgrades for both hardware and materials and software is a safer bet. And I'd rather use OPEX versus CAPEX. So manufacturers should really consider subscription. Uh, but I want to take it even further. I want to say that uh, if you look at Amazon AWS, um, storage in the cloud, uh, security and all that, you really don't care. What you care about is uh, your need for storage on demand. You really don't care where the service is on. You really don't care who's operating it, what's the room temperature, what's security, uh, what kind of hacking protocol. You just want it to be, uh, you just want your data safely stored somewhere. Correct. So I think that's the future of 3D printing and not only subscription, but I saw uh, this slowly happening the last few years that uh, bigger companies, uh, there's a hybrid. They don't want it. They don't want to work for service bureau, uh, but they don't want to own it and operate it themselves. So now there's a new trend where I'll subscribe to the machine, uh, but but keep it in your co-location where your machines are. You take care of it. You run it. You upgrade it. You maintain it. Uh, and just chuck it is mine. It's assigned to me, even though I never hold the title. But I just pay for the, the, the demand. If I need another machine capacity, I just pay for more. But I no longer need to find an operator because in the last five years, manufacturers, especially metal 3D printing, they were selling more printers than available talent of operators to actually running them. Right. Uh, yeah. When I was with Arkham, I could sell uh, two A2Xs. It is a $2.4 million deal. But you know what's the catch? The catch is I have the money. I'll buy two Arkham machines, but I need you to give me an operator. I need you to find uh, an operator to come with the package or else I won't buy. Why? Because he didn't want to have two pieces of furniture and, and yeah. have uh, hiring an operator and spent six, seven, nine months in on learning curve and ramping up. He wanted to get started from day one. And guess what? There were not enough talent 
a knowledgeable operator in the country to do it. So I, I, it, it, it was, that deal was stalled for quite a while. And that's what my job to desktop metal. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think it's interesting, like, okay, so the subscription model, I'm intrigued by it financially, it's interesting. You know, in the case of the carbon deal, it, always, it didn't make sense financially for me anywhere beyond a year or something, because it was just so ridiculously expensive compared to just buying per factories and, 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 uh, and buying in service and stuff from Vision Tech or something like that. So I never really understood the, you know, financially long-term, if you're committed to this technology, then things like shorter, you know, lower resin cost, which you can you know, do by yourself, maybe by a factor of 10 lower on certain parts. Uh, you know, being able to maintain your own machines just to be able to get the edge and not have downtime, they all mean that, that to me, financially, you're going to be, if you're doing manufacturing, it's actually going to make the subscription might be interesting to get your feet wet, but later on, you're going to want to switch to owning it yourself anyway. That's an interesting point. But remember, we are humans. No matter what, what the market wants, what I read, how I read the market is, they want options. They never want yeah. to be told what to do. You know, just like when you buy a car you, and, and you have the money, you buy all the whistles and upgrades and all that, and you, never, yeah. you might never need them or, or use them, but you have this feeling that you can't if you want to. So, so yeah. what the market I see is they want to have the option to do subscription if they want to, but they still want the option to buy should they want to bring it in-house later. So, so yours, to your point, it is not either or you buy it or subscribe. Mm -hmm. You can always start with a subscription operated by the manufacturer somewhere and all that. And then because you need to do your due diligence and then you graduate. And then when you need more demand, then maybe you bring two machines in subscription operated by the manufacturer because they know how to run it from day one. And then when I go to full production, then I buy them. So I would say it's not either or, it's now as a, a step stone, migrating mm -hmm. from subscription to procurement. And by that time you're stalling, and by that time in two, three years now, the machines might be even faster. There might be three, four material more than they don't have today. So, but you've got to start the journey. So I would say the subscription model makes sense as an enabler to reduce the friction to get started. And if you think about it with most manufacturer being a private company, it makes sense for the customer for many reasons, right? Especially CapEx to OpEx of, of many reasons. But for the, uh, um, for the manufacturer, it's easy for the sales guy to sell uh, uh, instead of a million dollar to subscription at 300,000 a year, it's easier to sell. So this is good for sales and, and revenue. And because it's subscription, you probably collect a third, but it's a three-year minimum typically spread over three years. Then you have predictive uh, revenue for year two, year yeah. three. And you know what the investors, they love it. They, yeah, they love the fact that you, they're yeah. willing to take less this year, but you're already locked in for year two, year three. And then you have yeah. this cascading effect. What you want yeah. is continue to innovate and uh, even more material throughput and features so they will continue to uh, run extended subscription beyond year three or upgrade for another three years so uh, i think it makes sense all around the relationship with the customer and the ongoing revenue of course it's just catnip to, to investors especially yes. vc investors they love this stuff and, but, so and, i totally understand that yeah it also involved too uh, that there are certain subscriptions uh, that i'm thinking of actually i'm going to do it myself it include all you can eat meaning it's a full right. buffet. I'll take care of all of it. Not only that all that you can consume 
any service consumable, any material consumable that you might need to do your your e-scooter or your bike, whatever it is, include all you can eat. You just write me a check every year. The rest is done. How easy is that for a customer? As a as someone who does consumer electronics, um, I I like the subscription model better than buying a machine and having it put into a factory. Um, I've done that with some equipment. Like I, I had to buy a laser engraver, like a you know a real one, not a toy one, um, <laughs> for doing production. And uh, we bought it, and right away we we're like, oh, this would have been cheaper to just like farm this out to someone else. Why did we do this? <laughs> yeah, no, but I understand the model makes sense as well, but. but... Yeah, I don't think it's a panacea. So I do, I do a, a, like the blended approach. Mm. What I really like, if you're talking about this all-you-can-eat stuff, is so we theoretically, the only people that are really motivated by making the most amount of parts are the material suppliers. Mm. So companies like DSM and Sabic and all those, uh, they want to shift material. So wouldn't it make a lot of sense for Sabic, for example, to buy a lot of capacity and then to resell this capacity? So they'll get into a higher uh, level business They'll be able to make more margin selling parts effectively instead of materials. They don't have to do the work because they can do the, uh, let the OEM do it. The OEM gets a guaranteed paycheck, right? And then it's up to the SABIC sales force or something to push these uh, parts. And that to me is, is a really, really very compelling model as well. My thoughts on that is uh, we're starting to see a lot of that, especially a lot of uh, startups teaming up with a big material supplier, DSM, Sabic, or DSF, and others. But unfortunately for the young startup, I see that they might be have limited materials roadmap in the future going forward. If you start with the customer uh, first, material versatility, meaning one machine that can do a number of different material or a material that I want to bring to the table later on, is a, a flexibility that I uh, want to have, right? Yeah. And, and, and having the freedom for the typical in the past, when there were no big player in the materials into 3D printing, both Dimension Stratasys and Zcorp were doing everything in-house. It was truly razor, razor blade, but they could make money both on the razor and the razor blade. So if you're not controlling your destiny by having material con consumable made in-house by yourself, and enjoy that gross margin because that's where the most of the money is, is in the material. Mm -hmm. By using a third party, the manufacturer of the equipment will not enjoy it as much. So it seems like the cake has already been divided and it is not, it's not as concentrated. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it depends what, I mean, I, I would agree. Like, first of all, it's very limited. I agree that, that I think is a really valid thing. If you're a service-based businesses, you're gonna, want a broad portfolio of materials and mm. even companies with broader portfolios, mm. you know, they don't have everything. Uh, so yeah. I think that's a really super valid argument. I think, but if we were making PA 12 for medical mm -hmm. device or whatever, yeah. Yeah. then I partner with whatever Arkham or whatever, and then, then that's fine. Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there's it, a risk. It's, there. just, it's, a, yeah, it's a shortcut. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 totally. And there's a risk there. I, I, I totally agree with that. For the first phase, I saw this like, you know, the technology from one vendor and then the material is, is force fed you as well. I think that's a that's a huge di uh, uh, disadvantage as well that it kept us from growing, I think, for a very long time because people were selling polymers for like $300, $500 a kilo for polymer. Uh, sometimes the titanium is like $600, $900 a kilo for titanium. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and then you're, you're going to like limit the number of business cases people can even try 
yeah. in the first place when they get started and also to manufacture. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, we're only doing really aerospace. Yeah, of course, because a lot of people are going to afford us. Right. And, and I, I think at one point we want to stay in the high margin stuff and then the, the, the useful stuff. I'd rather do airplane parts and McDonald's Happy Meal toys mm-hmm. uh, in the long run. But, but I do think there's other models. What I like about this is that just the fact that now we're in a different stage. And I would imagine you could buy PA-12 with the part manufacturing capacity, either done in AOS or somebody else or whatever. Uh, you could buy it from either Arkema or Solvay, right? Or yeah. Arkema, Solvay, and DSM. Yeah. And that would, be, that would actually make it more competitive. But I, yeah, I totally agree your point. I don't know. Yeah, but put, put, put yourself in the customer's uh, shoes, right? No matter what machine and PA12, for instance, if you're going to go full-blown manufacturing, you cannot risk a single source. So even even PA12 on that machine, it needs to have a redundancy. It needs to be a second supplier. Mm-hmm. Supply chain is really key in the game of, uh, of uh, production and manufacturing. That's why when GE bought the uh, Arkham and Conservation, it was really about supply chain control for the aerospace business. Um, so it's really about supply chain and, and listen to the customers. For instance, when I join Arkham and I look at all my frenemies, they're a part of that. All of them combined, there were less than 20 different metal or alloy material available parameters for those six laser powder bed vendors. 20 in total, overlapping. But when I look at what's available out there, so attractively uh, in subtractive manufacturing, there are over 200 different alloys. So when Arkham did the gamma titanium aluminite TI4822, and Arkham wasn't even sure whether they wanted to do it, but they did it, and the Avio Aero paid for that ended up enabling the company to be acquired for that supply chain control. So it's all about materials. So materials is much more important than equipment, in my opinion. Especially in a, if you're trying to sell somebody who has a, like the lighting industry, we have polycarbonate, that's what we use. We have it certified, we're not gonna switch. If we don't have that particular material they like, often sometimes even from the vendor, it has to be Clovis store or whatever, then, then, then they can't switch, you know? So there's this switching thing and also just like, there's a reason why we have so many polymers and so many metals. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of different parts, and then that leads to a lot of different applications being subpar if they're done anything else. So I, I totally agree with you that, that, you know, doing material and doing material correctly and getting the right mm-hmm. parts quality and the right material is, is probably the key key thing in the whole industry. And, and uh, so I'm really happy when we expand materials. Yeah. So you might say if uh, we improve the software, then we will uh, grow the industry even more. But let's say the whole industry combined, let's say metal, ceramic, uh, powder, metal, whatever. Let's say there are, let's say there are 200 different materials. Imagine if a new innovation enabling new parameter for another 200 material. That's how you grow the industry, even with exactly the same player, with exactly the same equipment. Just opening new materials would enable you to do new verticals who use maybe exotic alloys that they're not available or available today that you unlocking a new vertical that's could be a hundred million extra to the industry yeah. yeah i like that i like also that you can parallelize this development right a university somewhere you can continue to develop the machine while a university somewhere does the material or some vendor or somebody working together with those guys yeah. So I really think that's a, that's a very valuable thing in the materials. But I, I think, and, and a very valuable limitation you already hit on, and that's this whole thing of not having enough people. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned one-click metal, which I think is a really exciting technology. Worst name in 3D printing. The first time I saw them, I thought it was like somebody's <laughs> slogan. I thought it was somebody else's slogan, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one-click metal. I was like, oh, here we go again. And then I, I didn't know it was like somebody told me it was like a company. I was like, what? Oh. And anyway, <laughs> but, but 
do you think that the, the, these companies, so the one-click metal, a bunch of other ones, they essentially what they're doing is they take the the expensive parts out of the out of the the, the metal 3D printers to make the, the system significantly cheaper. So you use, for example, uh, lower cost motion stages, or you use like lower cost uh, like a Galvo type of setup uh, instead of like yeah, really high cost setups. You know, do you think these these kind of companies will make this problem worse, or they're not going to find a market? Or like Exact Metal is not going to find a market because there are not enough people? Or are these going to be the machines that everybody practices on, and, and, and so that everyone will have more uh, operators in a couple of years? What excites me about one-click metal is a different aspect. It's actually okay. uh, user friendliness. Um, yeah. Because you, you saw how uh, even uh, Formlabs made a brilliant move. They had service maintenance issue in the early days with the build tray. So they re redesigned their new gen uh, generation of printers to have the whole uh, build tray as a consumable. And therefore, mm -hmm. you have a fresh new build tray. So therefore, uh, it's a consumable and therefore, uh, you have less service issue. So I think the industry as a whole can do a much better job on user friendliness and mm -hmm. serviceability. This has been neglected. This is now that I've been mm -hmm. to seven 3D, uh, at my seventh 3D printing manufacturer, I think this is something <laughs> I carry with me that when we make a new machine or new service, that we need to make it easier for the user and, uh, and design it for serviceability. And what do I mean by that? I do like the cartridge feeding system of Montelic Metal because mm -hmm. powder handling is a pain for laser printing. Yeah. So that is, just that alone, I already like. I also like the price point, of course. I'm a sales guy, but it's user-friendly, right? You, you make it safer because it's mm -hmm. all contained. But more importantly is the serviceability. A lot of the components are serviceable and modular and uh, uh, accessible. So that when you design a machine for serviceability, well, that machine can live on forever because you just keep swapping out components. Mm -hmm. Instead of, uh, of like the early days of Z Corp, we had a huge uh, complex, uh, the whole back wall was a, a PCB board. It was a nightmare to troubleshoot. We reconfigured all that to a PCE box that ran, was the power source and all the, the PCB were inside the e-box. So when that was the most likely component to go down, so what the service guy only needed to do is bring a new e-box with him, go to the customer, shut it down, uh, swap the e-box, reboot, and the customer's up and running, and you go home and you troubleshoot. You have to mm -hmm. design for serviceability and user-friendliness. Mm -hmm. And I think one-click metal got that right. Yeah, well, I think it's an important part. I think I set up like reverse logistics chains for people as well. Mm -hmm. And and then the whole idea was like, they were like, yeah, we're going to start a service network. I'm like, you're never going to be able to start a service network. <laughs> right? Right? Or, or it's going to take you too long. And then we'll just get a guy to pick it up and then he'll bring a new machine. Mm. Right? <laughs> they'll bring a new machine and then we'll take the old one with us and then we'll repair it and we'll take, we'll do that in a centralized location and then they'll take a long time. It doesn't matter. The, the customer, the moment they call the next day, they have a new machine. And it was like, really, you can do that. I'm like, yeah, that's what I do with my parents' coffee machine. You know? <laughs> so I'm pretty sure, sure, sure we can make it work for, for your, like for your printers, you know? So, so, so yeah, that was, that, that's important. Yeah, it's, yeah, it was already important for prototyping. So imagine Volkswagen, BMW, Audi yeah. in manufacturing, their machine is down for two days. They could be losing millions, right? right. So it, uptime is even more critical. And you know, no machine, no technology will be uh, as reliable as 
as a CNC, which we have perfected over the last three, four decades, 3D printing is still not there yet. So you need redundancy to compensate for uptime. You might need an extra printer just in case on standby. Yeah. That's one thing I think is really interesting. I've always said that as an argument why I think the desktop printers for certain parts, right, can mm -hmm. be used. Like I think I think the Formlabs machines and some of the Sigas maybe and, and um, uh, can be used for manufacturing in certain cases. Also, mm -hmm. some of the more higher tech, well, I don't know, Prusa i3 originals and, mm -hmm. and also maybe Ultimaker kind of thing to make like B-side car parts. And my argument's always been, yeah, they're not as reliable, but then we just we print more parts. Right, and we toss away a couple. It's not exactly wonderful, but 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 you're going to have a, that kind of waste anyway. Yeah. Do you believe in in the the because it seems so logical? You know, this whole innovator's dilemma that the cheaper machines they sell a lot of them, they get better and better every time. You know, do you believe mm -hmm. in that kind of thing happening? Do you think that that's that's going to happen? Or you believe not? Because it's a completely different system. It's not meant for that. You know. Yeah, it, it's happening right now. So, uh, ten years ago, when I joined three D Systems, um, the most available, the most popular SLA machine was the Viper and it was 180,000. And with Formlabs giving, I would say all these prosumer industrial entry point SLA, DLP, uh, even FDM, they, the quality is so good that uh, they are giving the incumbent a run for their money. So mm. yeah, so why would you spend 180K on one Viper when I can buy a fleet, a print farm of uh, Formlabs printer, and if one goes down, it doesn't matter. I have another twelve yeah, I can exactly. use. So, so you have this. What what production uh, manufacturing guys want is uh, modularity. They want a modular cell. So if one goes down, you don't worry because you have others to use. So the overall uptime is still up. So that gives them a flexibility that they wouldn't have with a big uh, $180,000 Viper SLA machine. I think that's interesting as well, because if we look at the SLA machines, like the, there's a lot of these 250s even, and also Vipers that are still running. Mm -hmm. uh, service bureaus, you see them. Materialize has like a, I don't know, it's like, I think it's a 250, an early one. It's got one of these green screen computers next to it. Mm -hmm. It still works. <laughs> and, and, and that's something that I think is really interesting. You were talking about design for you know serviceability and stuff. If you look at SLA, it's almost a beautiful technology. You've got the screen, right? Mm -hmm. Some kind of optical plate thing that could, that's going to get damaged at one point, right? Depending yeah. on how you do it. But, but the laser, the Galva or whatever moves it, and then one central motion stage is essentially, that's it. You know, mm -hmm. so as long as these parts are really, really good, then then the, the machine itself, the core machine, can last for a very long time. Yep. But as material properties gets better on DLP versus SLA, if you just look at throughput and speed of a laser beam versus a whole projection of a mask of DLP, I yeah. think uh, my money is on DLP. It's it's a, okay. a laser will be. It's a little bit drawing the analogy to a 2D printer, right? When you have a laser, it's yeah. kind of like a, a plotter with a pen and you just draw mm -hmm. one line versus an inkjet with a raster. You cover much more yeah. throughput for manufacturing. Yeah. So this is why Carbon is enjoying uh, uh, their growth and I think Nexus is doing as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm excited about Azure 3D in Chicago. Um, yeah. they, uh, they're not using laser and they can go really fast. So yeah. I think that as long as material properties are similar to what is available today in 3D printing or superior, the throughput is going to be what's going to really, it's probably the 
key factor for going to mass production. Because if you look at 3D printing as a whole, we might do manufacturing production part in the thousands or 10,000, but we're not there yet to do millions of components yet for a, a, a Corolla or a, 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 a Nissan Sentra, right? That's a, that's a much bigger volume in the millions and having a higher throughput is gonna get us there. So I'm confident we will get there and I'm excited to see faster innovation in the DLP space as well. Well, talk a little bit about where you are now, because you're, you're now you make bicycles. Right. So first of all, first of all, why are you guys making bicycles? And and and, and, and yeah, just literally why you're making bicycles. I mean, like either marketing or a technology perspective, I think it'd be really interesting to me. Because you're not, you know, you're making the, you're making the technology, right? Yeah. And now you're so, doing a Kickstarter. Yeah. Right. So so the 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 first answer is uh, because we do that very well. The, the bike frame. Uh, that's a killer app for a river of many. Um, but um, but let me start with first, what is a river? So a river uh, is a six year old startup. We use robotic, we use continuous carbon fiber uh, filament. We have a six axis robot arm. So you have the filament that is pre-pricked. One filament is a single deposition head. Uh, and that's uh, half peak and half aerospace graded continuous carbon fiber in one filament. It goes to the robot arm, which is a six axis. And then we have a build table of the 1.1 by one meter that rotates, which is important when you do continuous carbon fiber. So when you wanna do a unibody, notice the superstrata is a unibody. It's, a, it's round, it's continuous, it's perfect for continuous carbon fiber. Um, so we did the bike because we do that very well uh, in terms of the size, in terms of the resolution, uh, the, the filament size that we are using. Uh, that is a sweet spot for throughput, speed, and resolution. Um, so we did the Emory bike uh, a little over two years ago. We learned a lot. And as you know, as the technology and hardware matures, this is a way a, to show the world that uh, what could be done. Uh, using um, uh, DED composites, 3D printing. But instead of uh, waiting and, and, and uh, for somebody to, to see what we can do and work with us, we have experience making an e-bike in the past. So we decided to, um, to, to share and show the world what you could do with additive uh, continuous carbon fiber. So we decided to do the Indiegogo um, optimizing with beautiful design, using robotics, continuous carbon fiber, and, and trying to make the e-bike sexy, but we're doing it with 3D printing. Um, and it has been well received. We launched this Monday, within 24 hours, we, uh, we got support of over $1 million. And yesterday, after 96 hours, we passed the $2 million mark. We are ecstatic. This just, uh, now we just need to make them. Yeah, that's yeah, the hard yeah. part. Yeah, but you have a printer, so. Yeah. So, so not, not only do you have a printer, we already announced in the past that we are going to build the largest uh, composite print from in Vietnam. Because as you know, yeah. any 3D printing, uh, printing as is, is not the final product. They still need, any 3D printing technology needs post-processing. And Vietnam has uh, a lot of skillful, affordable labor, uh, and affo an affordable la labor force. And, and uh, our new CEO, Sonny, and I, we are both Vietnamese. Uh, so it's an unfair advantage that uh, we're going to build uh, the biggest print farm. We're going to start with 12 aqua printers in Vietnam outside of uh, Ho Chi Minh City. 
but it's going to have hundreds of machine. Uh, to give you some idea, a five bike company, we hope to, the Indiegogo is really a sales technology demonstrator. We hope to work with big brand names who want to make their next e-scooter, e-moped or e-bike, because I think that's the future, electric mobility. Uh, we inspire to be the Tesla of e-bikes and e-scooters. Um, so we can work with the big brand. Some of them have told me that if we do this well, just for one of their design, they will need at least 15,000 frame for one customer. And for that 15,000, I probably need at least 30 aqua for just that customer with that design. So if I just have four customers like that of all the customers in the world, I will keep my 120 aqua printers doing nothing but bike frame. And I'm okay with that because <laughs> I just need to fill up the box. I, I find the printer fascinating. The print head that you guys have is just amazing. Um, the way it's like spooling out the carbon fiber and then laying it down the laser and the whole thing. How long does it actually take to make uh, a bike frame? Uh, less than a, a day for now. Okay, wow. But, but because as you know, what you can do today doesn't mean, doesn't tell you what you can do next year or right. the year after. So it used to take two days. Now we're down to one day. And it's just uh, optimizing the throughput and speed by temperature control of the substrate and filament. So we hope to go uh, two to three times even faster than that. The reason why I joined Avivo back in March is that I, I, I wanted to be in 3D printing and I don't know composite. I've done plastic and metal and composite. I, I thought it's, it's, uh, composite 3D printing has been neglected. And I want to understand and learn that and, and inspire the, the, the world about composite 3D printing. So I'm, it's humbling to learn something new. But I joined the team because I think it's an amazing team. The people are amazing. I think it's a cool technology with robotics and composite. But uh, I hope you agree with me. Now that I've done 3D printing for 17 years, I think that the software designing for additive is one of the weakest link in, in 3D printing as a whole. But, but today, there have been a different attempt. You saw PTC buying Unshape and Fushstrom. Yeah, yeah. You see Interpology coming up. Uh, but, but I think we need to go further. So most 3D printing manufacturers, their software is just really just a slicer G-code toolpath. That's all it does. Yeah. But what the, the market, the customer really need is one uh, suite of, uh, of software in one place, not fragmented by one manufacturer, that um, wouldn't it be nice that this uh, hardware has a software that I can import the typical CAT, a 3D CAT, that I can do uh, additive FEA analysis. I can do a loop of topology optimization. So whatever design I import, I uh, will morph it into topology optimization for that machine for that specific material, for that uh, specific print speed parameter, and then optimizing that toolpath, and then do a virtual simulation of, can I actually print that with collision detection and density, simulate that before you hit print. And there's Sounds only really one- really good. <laughs> yeah, and right. <laughs> and there's only one company that can do that. And therefore, Avivo is actually the core competence of the software, not the hardware. Avivo is offering all that today. I love this from a marketing perspective. I've been trying to pitch this idea, the living white paper for a number of years, where it's like we fund a startup, we fund a series of startups, yep. and, then, uh, and then they uh, essentially will commercialize the technology and, and, and help 
spread the application and tell people how it actually works and what the costing is. So you're essentially you're going further because you're, you're yourself doing crowdfunding. Uh, so I'd love that, like completely love it. And it seems like the most effective, your, your marketing department is actually making money for the rest of the company. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of just leads, and then also you get leads, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it, I think it's beautiful, man. I think the, the, I really want to congratulate you guys on this. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Well, we have a secret weapon. Our CEO Sonny Wu oh. happens to be the founder of Misfit Wearables, so he knows yeah. how ah. to do this uh, marketing hack, and he yeah. is awesome at that. Yeah. I'm curious That's why good. you guys went with uh, Indiegogo as opposed to the Kickstarter. Uh, I think for the terms and conditions, I think there was just uh, a much, uh, much uh, more much looser, looser. <laughs> much looser, more more friendly, but also more global for the reach that we are looking for. Because you know, this is uh, this is business to consumer directly, right. and the media, the procurement, the credit card, it just it has to be global. Um, and we've been very happy with Indiegogo. Because Max, uh, Max also got started. On, well, you got started on Kickstarter, right? Yeah, I got. Uh, I did so, a Kickstarter. So. Yeah, for for the the, the three doodler. So uh, I just want to go like, like like Kickstarter and Indiegogo have been kind of graveyards for three D printing startups and all sorts of ideas that didn't yes, work. Yes, they and have. Didn't. <laughs> yeah. and and so is you know it has been a boon for industry as well, right? I mean, I think has a lot changed with that kind of the crowdfunding area. I, I, I would say I would say the audience is more educated, right? They've seen a lot come and go. They've seen successes and, and failures. So they are skeptical. So as I would say the audience of both platforms are looking much deeper into, okay, who's actually going to execute this? Who's actually the team, the company behind this? Because it's, it's still a lot of money to give away one, two thousand is a, is a, is a big uh, check, right? So yeah. they're becoming much more selective. Uh, but but um, what the Super Strider campaign has taught us, people still value design. And um, I think one of the reasons why we have been successful is because we own the technology. We we were doing continuous carbon fiber. We had done the M-Way. And because we have um, we own the technology, we are doing it, and we're doing all in-house, and we continue to improve the hardware, the software, and the materials. I think that gave people confidence that I'm not just a marketeer taking other people's component and make something beautiful out of it. No, they actually can make it all the way through. So that I think that's a compelling part. And do you guys, since you have these like Kickstarter uh, geniuses around me, like uh, so, what are what are some tips for these these uh, kind of Kickstarter Indiegogo campaigns? What are some tips or best practices? Uh, I, I, I will be honest, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be part of this team, but the credit goes to Sonny Wu, our CEO. He, okay, okay, he, he's the driver uh, behind the Indiegogo campaign, and he's, he's done a fantastic job. So the credit goes, all credit goes to him and the team, that the, the marketing team. Um, it's really about branding, and we're mm -hmm. very pleased with the, the media picked up around the world. You're going to have a good video, George. you got to have a good video, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't have yeah, to be a pretty go. video. It has to be a good yeah. video. <laughs> the video should be cool, but it should also be real. So right. we look, we'll look at the video. Actually, the the scene, the stage, is the same one that was used for Batman movie. Yeah, right. That's that was in Hong Kong, wasn't it? <laughs> I, I I cannot disclose, but we we, <laughs> we we put a lot of effort into the video to make it. Um, I recognized one of the streets because I used to live near there. <laughs> 
Yep. Oh, we have okay. some friends in the movie industry. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Perfect. Guys. All right. Tuan, thank you so much for, for joining us today. That was always a really wonderful talk. I think I have the idea that we could probably turn the talk on for another couple yeah, of hours. Yeah. This was fascinating. <laughs> I enjoyed yeah. it. Thank you. Um, all right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today on another episode of the 3D Pod. My name is Joris Peels, and I was together today with Maxwell Vogue and Tom Trump. Um, and uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.